Today in the podcast, I speak with Barry Coffing, a band evangelist and music entrepreneur. He has built a series of companies and services that enable musical artists to be fairly paid from the licensing and use of their music. His brand goals are to be fair and transparent in all his dealings and to prove that the really nice guys finish first. He has written a number one hit song. He has been nominated for an Emmy. He has had major publishing, distribution and record deals where he really learned a lot. And he has written over 200 songs for film and TV. He is an award-winning film producer. His specialities in the music business include technology, legal, licensing, distribution, streaming and live events. His specialities in music creation include composition, production and scoring. He is also a gold certified music salesperson. Welcome back, Barry. Well, thanks for having me. Now, in previous episodes that we had you on, we just well glossed over this idea of musical legacies. And I don't see a whole lot of knowledge online unless I'm missing something about musical legacies for those people who have a body of work that maybe want to, we'll say in inverted commas, retire or financially benefit for, from their work in their later years or just people who want to plan for the future. Now, in the last episodes, we learned about Sony, Warner and Universal and how those companies are operating in terms of purchasing musical legacies. Now, can you talk more about that first and explain that? Right. <laughs> the wonderful world of the phone yeah. <laughs> kicking in. Uh, it's, it's all of us. Um, anyway, so yeah, the again, with all the consolidations and mergers and I bought this guy and I bought that, the music business is, is sort of, Unlike the universe, it's always expanding. It's always expanding and contracting, expanding, contracting. We can't contract anymore. We're down to three big, uh, and, and they're, they're music groups. You know, it's Universal, it's Sony, it's Warner, and all their subsidiaries. So there's RCA, BMG, and all these other guys have all been bought up by somebody else. Yeah, there's I mean, I've heard, I've heard artists and they say, oh, I'd love to get my legacy purchased by Sony. Uh, is that realistic? And, and, um, nowadays, yeah, it is. I mean, what's, what's crazy, I think, and this is what you were talking about. So you've got these three big players, they've kind of, uh, while the major labels compete, they don't compete that hard. You know, they kind of like, look, there's enough to go around. Let's not do anything stupid. Yeah. It's sort of like some of the sports teams where the owners will get mad if you overpay for a player because it raises the rates for everybody. So they've had a pretty safe run for a couple of decades, for a couple of generations, actually, where they didn't really, you know, it's been a long time since they had a, a, a they were really competing in a, an aggressive way. Um, some of the things like in uh, like 92, 93, when they had, they started to make a lot of bad records, in the, particularly in the States. Like they had, there was a really brief time in the 80s where they had it to a math equation. It had kind of been, um, the creative people had kind of been crazy and and uh, too much drugs, too much stupidity. Like, you know, I, I love Fleetwood Mac, but spending a million dollars on a, on their next record, where they were crashing electric cars in the parking lot and not showing up and keeping the I know, I've running. heard stories even of alcohol abuse and, and even the, oh, the later age that the came. Oh, of it, you know. Yeah, yeah, but like they regret it now, some of them. They really do. Oh, sure they do. Yeah. But, you know, anyway, so they, the big, the grownups came in and took it over. So the music business was no longer run by 
the creative people anymore. It was accountants and lawyers. And they figured out, they said, you know what? If we get a top 10 hit, it'll sell X amount of records. And they could predict with a really good amount of, of you know, they, 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 they had a pretty good idea. If you do this and it charts here, it'll sell this many records. And once they had it to a math equation, they're going, why are we spending all this money to do 10 good songs? F you, give me three singles. I don't give it, put crap on the rest of it. Don't care. Not even going to look at it. Let the, the artist wants to do a reggae tune. Great. I don't care if they're a country artist. Do that. So they did that. And what happened is, is uh, like one of the things about the U.S. industry as opposed to Europe. Europe was very much a singles market. So what, what you would do if you did a business deal at that time, like I did, did, a, did a deal with a Swedish artist in, on Sony. And they said, and it was a double single deal. So in Europe, they go, let's get two singles. Let's do them. Let's put them in the marketplace. We would never be stupid enough to make a whole record if we know we don't have a hit. Now, the downside to that is you put one of those singles out, it blows up. Now you have no album to sell them. So then they would put together these, the, the, the European records albums were crappy because they would race to go do everything to get it out. Just ups, we got a hit that got away from us. So they were consistently good singles, bad records. The United States, they were always very 60s, still from the 60s, hippy-dippy. They would make these great albums and take their time. Well, in the 80s, they start going, let's just do the singles. You know, they, they weren't, they would do the whole album. So they were still quick to market to make more money off the album sales. But they quit caring about a full record that was great. Like they no longer made the records that they made in the 70s. Yeah, in other words, yeah. what you're saying is the quality really went down because they were just so focused on the business model proof of concept. Well, and, and the U.S. The market, yeah, the U.S. market that was, it was a singles market. It's always been a singles market in Europe. So they buy, you buy the little single, that's what you bought. And then maybe you bought the record if you're a super fan. Here, we'd had that legacy of album sales and they ruined it because in the 80s, it started being 15 bucks for a CD because you liked one song. So the public started going, forget that, I'm going to go buy this singles so our whole market started to shift to buying singles and instead of saying wow we should make better records again they went and let them eat cake and so what they did is they said in i think it was like 1993 miraculously every single major label within a period of two weeks discontinued making singles available to the american public they went f you let them eat cake and so they, you, you want that one good song? Buy the whole CD. So they set, that set, and, and, and you had a whole generation that went, album, music's not worth it. 15, you know, 15 bucks for, for one song? That's not, that, I, don't, I don't, like, they, they ruined everything. They, they had a generation that didn't value music. And when Napster came along, they were basically pouring, sitting in a whole pool of gasoline. And when Napster came on, that was the that was the 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 match that burnt the whole business to the core because everybody like they had a whole generation going you've been effing me for 10 years i'm gonna f you back you know i'm gonna steal your music i only want the one song what do i care so that started a whole and they tried to sue everybody and whack-a-mole and all that you know so that that's sort of where the the, the world was and in, in that period the big guys had it where if you hit this single, you sell that many records. So they were doing that. And then when the public revolted, they went F you instead of making better records and changing it. 
make it so they can't buy anything else. They thought they had all the, the power. And once Napster came out, it changed everything. When Napster came out and people started being able to steal songs, they did. So they thought they, they said, aha, we've got you. You'll have to buy the fifth. You have to buy a crappy record if you want my one great song. Well, once Napster came out and the internet and all that, they didn't have to do that. And, and the music business as a whole sank like a stone, particularly in the States. And so when, when that happened, you know, then Apple came along, like the, the music business is always getting saved. So then Steve Jobs comes along. He says, I don't want to pay for these crappy records. I'm going to do one song at a time. The major labels fought him, fought him, fought him. When Napster came out and they were getting killed, they're going, you know, all right, let it happen. And one of the things that Steve Jobs did that was super smart is he said 99 cent downloads one song and he said, um, I'll do a 30-70 split with the major labels and the songwriters and everything. I'll only take 30%. And you know what else I'll do? I'll pay the credit card fee. Well, the credit card fee on a monthly subscription or something like that is 25, 30 cents. So basically, the major labels are laughing going, he'll be out of business in three weeks, but let's make some money. So they, they underestimate Steve Jobs and do it. What they don't know is Jobs is not an idiot. At that time, when you bought a single at Amazon, at, at Apple, it held it for up to 10 business days so you could buy some more. So they would do a gang run of only one credit card thing. So then he still was fine. So, yeah, so he, so he did that. And then they went, oh, crap, he is sustainable, you know? And so they, they no longer had their leverage to make people buy bad albums. And so that was the first big, you know, paradigm shift in that. And so that, uh, and, and again, when that way, when Spotify came along, they didn't try to sue Spotify and put them out of business. The major labels made really onerous deals with Spotify. So their early Spotify deal, because Daniel Eck, whether you love him or hate him, he was the second savior. Steve Jobs saved it then. We were still in massive trouble. It took Spotify to show us a new way to to deal with the music business in the future. And that was streaming on demand, every song in the world. He had a, he would have had a vision yeah, for that, yeah. you know? So when you look at artists who will say that have um, a body of work, will say that they created in the maybe 60s, 70s, 80s or whatever, that's now kind of there like an archive. What happens to those archives usually? It depends. Did it make any money? Well, if it has positive market feedback, I'm thinking of gold case scenario where, you know, there's been very good sales in the past. You know, it's it's been performed. Yeah, those, those guys, the world. Yeah, okay. So it now come to the next phase. So in the last, probably, uh, I'm going to say, in the last four months, there have been legacy catalog sales of over $2 billion. Bruce Springsteen, 500 million. Bowie's estate, 400 million. You can't believe the money. And the two people that are fueling that. So the major labels, they didn't want to pay that for it. What happened is two players, um, Primary Wave was the first one to do this kind of thing. And what, the, what they did is um, they went in to the artist and said, look, we don't want to take all of your publishing. We just want to buy half of it. We want to be your partner. We'll give you some money so you can do some new stuff that you want. So these legacy artists that were had the, the track record you're talking about, they went in in primary wave. Larry and those guys went in and were partners with them. 
So instead of the artist for the first time, instead of losing all the rights to all of their stuff, they're going, we're, we still have a piece of our publishing. We still, it's, it behooves us to work harder, you know? Um, now the problem with doing that is they, they, the primary wave and the other one out there is hypnosis. These guys buy parts of it, but they have no control really. Like they have a few things that they own hundred percent, but most of the part, it's still got the same messiness of you've got to have a lot, the label sign off and the, or the artist and them and this, it's a very complex business that they've created that you can't go to one place and go, can I have this? But because they, they paid for a fraction of the publishing, they paid a lot of money for that and they didn't take control. So it changed the marketplace because these guys, uh, I think primary wave, they had a $150 million round and a $300 million round. So they went in and, and like primary waves got Prince. Now they started out having Nirvana. Then they did a deal with BMG and then BMG kept it, but then they broke away and started up again. And now they've got Prince. They've got like all these legacy things. And then hypnosis, which is out of the UK, it, the, the guy's name is Merck that runs the whole thing. And he is a wild man, comes from management, grew up in Canada, but, but worked with really big legacy artists in, in management. So he knew a lot about the music business. And he has this concept of, if I can get enough songs, even partially under my control, I can change the leverage for songwriters in the future. And so he's gone on. And one of the first people he got, he got all of Barry Manilow's stuff. He got like, so Merck's running around and, and technically overpaying. Like yeah, paying. He's not overpaying, but he's he's paying so much that it's like an IPO. That before you can recoup the money he's advanced, it will take twenty. Right, years. and the other side of this is your focus very much in your speech about you know songs and all of that. What about like genres of classical music, R and B, you know, jazz and all of those? Does that all fall into the same umbrella of of legacies and so on? What you're describing, it, it, it does, but but they're less valuable, you know. So what the legacy thing is, so now writing and publishing, it, it comes down to like any business, a multiple. And to give you an idea, if you knew nothing about it, if you and I had, uh, you know, Sylvia and Barry's, uh, you know, construction company, and we did a million dollars in business a year, and we said, you know what, you and I would like to retire. So let's sell it. So whoever bought it from us would probably give us a multiple of three to five times that. So we would sell the entire company, all its assets, everything for three to $5 million. And that's what we would have to retire on. Publishing in the music sense was always a higher multiple because it's longer, it's more sustainable. It doesn't like if they're, if, if people quit doing construction, that company loses value. People are going to keep listening to music. It doesn't, it's very steady and safe. It's like a, our version of a municipal bond. So even in its bad times, the multiples were seven times whatever the annual earnings are. And they'll do, they'll say, let's look at the earnings over the last three to five years. They'll do it as a math equation and go, it's worth X. But when these guys came in, they were paying so much that they were like right now, a publishing catalog is worth 20 times, 10 to 20 times whatever you got oh into goodness. it. So it's almost like a public. Now, offer. when we look at him, hypnosis, hypnosis is in the UK and primary way or primary wave, sorry, is in the US. US, US. US. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're easy to get in contact with if there was an artist listening to this podcast that just want to kind of research. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can reach out to those guys. And again, they're mostly, they know what they're looking for, but it still doesn't hurt to reach to, out to reach and to out see what for. kind of a response. So once you have, I would say, positive market feedback, meaning sales, and you've got proof that, yeah, my music is worth something, it's... Well, I mean, those those guys, and they, they are, they're the clash of titans. They want big numbers, big things. Um, the, the, the people you're talking about, let's say somebody who's a mid-level player, he may have a, a publishing company or like I, I have a, an art, uh, there's a company in Florida. Uh, is, the guy's name's Buddy Resnick and he runs around, he buys an interesting set of catalogs. He goes into studios and publishing companies and buys these smaller catalogs of people like what you're talking about. There are more mid-level Yeah, I'm guys thinking like it's it's grand to say out. like the top guys. Okay, there's a certain number there, but there's a lot of mid-level stuff there. And I mean, it's pretty good. It is really good stuff. It's in, very enjoyable to listen to whatever. I'm just wondering where do they fit in? You're speaking well, that, about that's what Well, there's two different things. So being pretty good is a factor. They don't, in this business part of it, they don't think, they don't care how good it is. It can be the crappiest song on earth. Is it making money? You know, the, the best way to think about uh, music and stuff is it's intellectual property. And property is, is really interesting. If you and I bought a, uh, uh, some land in a desert. It wouldn't be worth anything for a long time. But as the city starts to encroach and yeah, this and that and the other, are, next thing yeah. you know, uh, if you hold on to it long enough, it becomes yes, valuable. Yeah. And it's the same thing with a lot of publishing catalogs. Not all of them, but uh, but a lot of them, if you hold on to them long enough, even that bad song becomes good. could turn and be yeah. good. Or the, the hit song you had 20 years ago, somebody remakes it. And what's interesting about that, if, if somebody remakes one of your old songs, well, it becomes popular again. And then with that new new math formula, you're going, well, now my song is worth uh, seven times whatever the income was. So it is a it's a big magnifier on the value. So of the, the gentleman there you just mentioned in Florida, are there many of those people in the mid range level? you know, purchasing catalogs and doing that, or is there only a small few? No, there, there, there's many of them, but none of us know who they are. They all wander around this world that we can't yeah, find. Yeah, you it's know? an invisible world. They, they exist. Right? Invisible world. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's one of the things that we're trying to map with what we're doing a little bit, because because of what I'm doing with Music Supervisor and the new streaming site, um, I'm a, I, anybody who's got a catalog, I'm the perfect guy because if I get you in a movie or you start your streaming numbers, if I get you income of yeah, any it's kind, worth. your whole catalog is exponentially more valuable. So it's worth knowing about Barry coughing and his offerings. Yeah, well, it's worth knowing somebody like me, get into a movie. Oh yeah, I know, I know where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. I'm just wondering, I'm an artist. I'm trying to monetize my work now and as well plan for the future potentially. And there's a big discussion about NFTs. And if you don't know what NFTs are, well, Barry, what are they? Non-fungible tokens. Explain what they are. Uh, so um, non-fungible means, well, it's it's, it's basically- Well, first you want to say here a, that it's it's in the crypto world for a start. Would you say that? Yeah, it is. It, well, sort of. It's you on know, the blockchain. Yes, it it's. Well, but that doesn't make it necessarily crypto. So a non-fungible token is a token. It is not a Crypt it is not a crypto. Yeah, but it, it's what I'm know. trying to say. It's part of that world. It's not a crypto, but it's part of that world blockchain and all it's, that. It's, it's certainly in that world yeah. because non-fungible tokens will operate on a blockchain like a crypto. They'll do 
Some of them can have, they can have smart contracts like that live on the blockchain. There's a lot of things. They're the same. They, they're a, a, they're, they're not a currency, but they, they have a certain yes. value. So can you tell us more how artists can use them? What's going on with this whole world of NFTs? I know it's big. Well, well, well firstly, I just want to precursor this. It's a big world. And you said there before we started recording in the next 36 months, it's probably going to blow a gasket. Meaning it's really going to get yeah. there. So if you want to get in, now's the time, basically. Would you suggest that? Uh, no, not necessarily, no. no. Um, for me, I'm a... I'm cautiously wading in the water. Okay, and watching it. So, okay. yes, yes. So, so before we get into this, because I do want to get, you know, I love being weird and geeky. Um, but uh, um, I think the 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 number one problem you talked about: how do I retire? Yeah, how do you plan for the future? And, and, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, well, those are two different things. Because retire is I've done all this work, I've made all this money, I want to maximize the assets that I have, and that's one thing. I would venture to say 99% of your people don't have that problem. 99% of your people have a, a funding problem. How do I get enough money or time or whatever to build this dream legacy, to, to build this, this estate of, you know, cash or prizes or intellectual property? How do I fund my company? And whether you think of yourself as a company, you are, you know, so NFTs, represent a unique way to fund yourself. So uh, two generations ago, David Bowie was broke and he wanted to do a bunch of cool things. And he'd done all these records and movies and he was always doing stuff, but he couldn't get enough ahead cash wise. He, he had cash flow problems to live the life and to do the work that he wanted to do. So some smart bankers created a bond just like you do a municipal bond for a government or a works product or whatever. And they created a, a financial instrument and they called them Bowie bonds. And they raised $35 million for a stake in anything that Bowie did. If Bowie did a commercial, a movie, a, anything, all that money was paid in, was into a pool that the fund uh, that repaid all the bondholders with interest. And so he leveraged his future career to raise money now. And he was wildly successful. Now then a bunch of other people came in and did it and they ruined it because the bankers got greedy. They took too much because in the Bowie bonds, Bowie got what he wanted. The investors made a nice return and the, the bankers and people who facilitated really, really did well. But when they got so greedy, they, 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 they killed the golden goose. Because then a bunch of people were investing in these things. They failed. They didn't recoup, you know, and they ruined it, just like greedy people do, you know. Non-fungible tokens represent a second chance at that. And so what you can do is it's almost like being like a government can issue its own currency. So can you. You can tokenize your future. So let's start with, with the first thing of if you don't know what a token is. So a token is just you know it's it it isn't an actual currency see crypto is a real currency it's a cryptocurrency it's a it's a real yeah, so has a real monetary value bitcoin ethereum and many more they're examples yep. yeah. yeah those those and those are the two you named the two most solid big ones ethereum and and bitcoin are it you know uh everybody else is you know kind of <laughs> you, trying to trot you know, along behind them, yeah. yeah yeah so uh but they you know 
they've got a certain, you know, they've got a value and like a currency, it goes up and down. It's got some fluctuation, but, uh, but it is, it, it is taking the place of money. They have a, what they call a fiat currency, which is real money, crypto, which is, you know, in the ether, you know, so, uh, uh, so a tokenizing to a token, uh, they call them a non-fungible token it means it's not actually money. NFT means we're going to create an instrument that's kind of like money, but it's not real money. We don't want it because it's illegal to do, you know, you'd have to, you'd run afoul of laws everywhere in the world. If you were to say, I'm going to print my own money. There are very strict rules to money. So non-fungible tokens, like, it's not real money. It's just kind of represents a sort of a value of money. And to give you an idea of something we all know, PayPal. PayPal is actually a token. The money you see that says it's dollars or, or euros or whatever, um, it says you've got this much, but, but in the back end, it's not real dollars. It's not real euros. It's tokens that represent the value of a real dollar or the value of a real euro. So when Elon Musk and those guys created it, the whole idea of PayPal was to do to enable Wall Street people or investors to go in and out of the market without taking actual money. They would get the tokens for what they took back, but it wasn't taxable. So they didn't get huge taxes for investing, jumping in and out of the market. And so that, yeah, so that's why Elon is still, and this is my theory, that's why he's still pissed at Wall Street because they didn't adopt it. They basically told him and his buddies to F off. And the only thing that saved PayPal was, was eBay. You know, uh, like little arts and crafts people. So there's a guy who had, who had built the perfect product for investing in and out of companies and all this without getting needlessly taxed, you know, because uh, you're, you're taking a big risk when you do that. You're helping the economy. Investors are a real lifeblood. And uh, they, in, in a lot of ways, they're overtaxed. And so, and that, and that's so, you know, they already, they're already high risk. But going back to the NFTs uh, now, so we're talking about tokens here. Yeah. So I have heard, just a simple example is I have a piece of music and I mint that into the blockchain and I might create, I don't know, 100 copies of that said piece of music and that's it. It's limited. And then if mm -hmm. it gets attention on the blockchain, there'll be a user that will purchase that. Am I correct? Purchase it with crypto. And the more people that buy it, the mm -hmm. value goes up. And because there's only a limited amount, of course, supply demand relationship happens. And what you're hoping as the artist selling the non-fungible token, that piece of music, is that the value is going to go up and that's how you can potentially fund yourself. Is that a correct overview? That is a correct assumption. Okay. Yep, very yeah. good. However, so here's my theory. And again, I could be wildly wrong, but that is the emperor's naked. You know, that is the emperor's new clothes. Everybody says there was only a hundred of these. Uh, there, You can't do it anymore. And here's the truth. Yeah, you can. But that's how yeah, you, do you, you know, how do you protect it? You see, this is because it's like the wild west of technology in my own language. Like, how do you protect? Okay, I've only I'm the artist. I've put out there ten copies, for example, hundred copies. We'll stick to the hundred mark, hundred copies of this. And how can somebody else not create more out of that? That's the good question. That's what I'm there wondering. That's where the yeah. So yeah. Zone is so that that's that's where that's where you, that's where uh that use case lo loses me so 
So let, let's let's take something a little more. Just one uh, thing. There's um, the name of this guy won't come to me, but there is a very good YouTube channel and it's of this lawyer guy. Um, I can put his name there in the notes when I'm doing the podcast. But he speaks yeah. about the legal end of it, of embedding legal language into the NFT when you're creating it to make sure legally you're covered. Now, how far that goes in protecting you on the blockchain and trying to recoup any wrongdoings? Well, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. So uh, again, the blockchain. We would we would be on here all day trying to trying to explain each one of these things. Blockchain is like a ledger written in ink. And it, and, it, and it lives around the world like the uh, Bitcoin is on a blockchain. There are 5,000 nodes with people that have that indelible uh, ink ledger that says, I just sold my uh, Bitcoin to Sylvia. It is no longer mine and it's registered. And once 15 nodes register it, then it spreads throughout the system. It's almost unhackable. You know, I mean, although Ethereum did get hacked, so I don't know how that, they did that. But, so, but blockchain, but Bitcoin's never been hacked. But but so that's that's the thing that makes it, you know, that's what it means being on the blockchain. Right. So what, are you saying the NFTs are protected through that method? Yes, they use the they, they're on a blockchain. So you're going to say that these hundred people are the only people. And if I sell my my uh, my my. Uh, you know, my NFT to listen to Sylvia's, all of Sylvia's greatest hits, that it is registered on that blockchain. And it knows that, that, that Barry no longer owns that, that, uh, Okay. NFT. So it sounds that that site is secured. Now, how do I stop though, the copying of that by somebody else? You can't, that's there. There is the big hole in the hole. That's whole the problem. Now, what you do is it, yeah, it's not a problem. They, the guys, they're solving it now, but they haven't got it solved. So a lot of people, uh, are 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 taking their nfts and they're not making it tied to a single piece of art or a single this or a single that they're going uh they're treating it more like the bowie bonds you now have a piece of everything i do like the band you talked about you now have a piece of all my future stuff so you'll it can be the nft could entitle you to do a first look at my new record you know the people that are smart are not trying to say no one else will ever hear it but you we'll keep it from the world a, that's not that mm, cool, no, and B, uh, it's almost unenforceable. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, you don't want to get lost in that. So let's let's circle back around since we have a limited amount of time for, for your people. Let's talk about my what I think is the the most exciting things about NFTs, and I'll give you just a a, a single case study. You've got okay. that uh, that legacy work. You get your legacy client. I've got you know, 200 songs, blah, blah, blah. You know, I've got this. So you can you can buy into, and it's earning X amount of money, and you can float a, a, an NFT that, that gives you X amount of piece of future income from my catalog. You can buy into the profits. But that's one of the ways you do the thing you're talking about. But let's talk about the use case that I'm more excited about. I don't have a bunch of songs, but I have a bunch of songs written that I haven't got recorded, that I haven't marketed, I haven't done anything. Most of your people fall in that. Um, one of the one of my rules of investing is if you if you are investing in the music business, if you're only investing in one artist or one songwriter, you are not investing. Oh no, not in the music gambling. business. You'd have to be broad. You'd have to. 
Yeah. So, so to me, if somebody, if you're only going to do one, one artist, one writer, one thing, go to Vegas, put it on black, spin the wheel. You got a 50, 50 shot. It's way, way better chance of you winning okay. there. Okay. Yeah. 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 If you want to call it an investment, you say, I am going to raise a certain amount of money. I'm going to sell NFTs, but it's not just on me. I'm going to get 10 artists that we're going to do an album on. And you're going to get a piece of the whole slate of things. And, and what I'm trying to do is I'm going to sell, let's call them a hundred, a hundred Sylvia coins. And they're going to be for the Sylvia's 10 hottest people that she's going to find. And so when you buy in, you got a piece of all these things. It's like, I got a piece of a racehorse. I got a piece of that fighter. You know, everybody, you could, the normal person can now be in our yes. game. Yeah. And you say, okay, we're going to go here. You're not going to um, cross collateralize it with the artist. So there's no, hey, I got to pay for Sylvia's mistake because my record did great, but her record did crappy. Now, in a normal funding source, if you borrowed money against a normal company, everybody's fates are tied together. When you do it, when you say, I'm going to fund in the profits of the future, it means that your, your record could be wildly successful and you could make a ton of money. My record fails. I don't get any of the profits from yours and none of the people invested in me get any of the profits. It's like, but if you've got the whole slate, it's like a mutual fund. A lot, when they invest in mutual funds, they say, I want to be in medicine. So they'll get 10 stocks in medical technology and you'll invest in all of them and you know hope the winners outrun outpace the losers yeah, yeah and you can do that exact same thing and then what's even more incredible is if you're an early adopter on an nft you say i bought one of the original 100 sylvia coins uh but i you know i got tight for money and i had to sell it you can create what's called a smart contract on the blockchain that says that anybody who is an original buyer of this of this NFT, even when they sell it, if it is resold again, you get 10% of the new profits. So it's sort of like, uh, it's like smart contracts have the ability to fix the greatest crime of all, which is the crime of a painter. Van Gogh sells his first painting for 500 bucks. The second time it goes out, it's worth a million. He never sees another dime. If they'd have had a smart contract- You a constant income. 10%, the original, the original creator always makes them. Yeah, that's, it's, you know, it's always. So they, they get to a, a small piece of the increased value. And that would be, there's a world where, where as, as NFTs uh, get more valuable. Also, you need to have, there are some people I know that have banks that have, there's a, a, a guy that I'm in talks with who has the ability to have uh cryptocurrency and fiat currency, real currency. So you can take your NFT or your crypto money and turn it into real money in and out the whole way. So it's they're solving these problems of how do you make a non-fungible token fundable? And, and you gotta have a marketplace to drive up and sell them so they increase in value. So these are all things that are not mature. Well, it's, it's So they're not the full Yeah, answer. it sounds like a world that if you're an artist and you want to, you know, I suppose future-proof yourself. Get into the world of NFTs and start educating yourself as soon as you can. Well, you want to be you want to be educating yourself, but but you can you can also do do this. Like NFTs are a great way; they're going to be a mechanism for helping us do that. But you could also crowdfund with your own fans and say, 
I want to make a new record. Who, you know, that's what Kickstarter yes, those things yeah. are. The thing that's different about this is this allows your fans not to just get a pat on the head and, a, and an autograph. It allows them to invest and get money. If you are wildly successful, they participate. Yeah, so there's a win-win. And that's the exciting thing is now your fans can really feel even closer to you because they help support it. They get special notifications. We're in the studio working on it. Here's the drums. You know, they 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 get to have all the relationship fun, building. Uh, and yeah, relationship building from a marketing point of view. And community yeah, building. Yeah. yeah, you you got a piece of him too? Me too. Fun. Yeah, yeah, you know. Now I love Sylvia. Now yeah. just to yeah. finish up this episode and it's been really interesting. Um I just want to go back to this idea of um a more mature type of musician who's now started to get sure. into their mature years what piece of advice would you give them to try and if they're mid-range we know the high range guys are kind of pretty well figured out we'll just say mid-range they've had decent sales they've had successful concerts in their past you know this kind of thing what kind of advice would you give them now maybe they're in their 60s for example they're in their 60s so one what else can you do to you need to drive in other words to get a good deal if you want to sell out you want to you want to pull you know i want to be i want to be bruce springsteen and get 500 million dollars and sell everything which is what he did masters publishing boom and yeah all that gone uh and it'll take him 20 years to recoup and he'll be dead before they do so this is like this is why it's like an ipo so you're talking about i want a retirement so the first thing you want to do is you want to drive up the value, re-put out these, these songs, do a box set, get them on, you know, market them on streaming. Every dollar that you can increase the revenue by, the more people are going to pay to take you out. So the first thing is increase the value. Like just, you got a house. Why don't you fix up the roof? Why don't yeah. you put so some like plants around So like re-release songs, get this? people onto it, build up your social media, get traction. Yeah, well, just any, anything you can do, the number one thing you need is money. The more money you can generate now, the more money you'll be worth in the future. So if you could do only one thing, fix up the house before you sell it. Okay. And what companies would you recommend somebody may approach in that kind of mid-range? Would you be going back to these two companies, Hypnosis, I don't know Primary that. Wave? Or Wave, sorry, Primary Wave? Probably, they, they probably won't. They're too big for you. So we, you got to find somebody. There are other people. And again, the major labels could be a possibility. It depends. Like if you've got real numbers, chances are you probably work with a major label. And what would you call a real company. number? Where's the starting point for a real number? Uh, I don't know. I think it's different people. You know, the, the guys like the, you know, uh, the guys in Florida that I know, uh, their their purchase what their typical purchase price probably 50 grand you know it's not like a, you know they're they're looking at something like that and and again 50 grand for a leg for an artist that's there maybe that's enough to pay off your house maybe that's like maybe you, you got to look at what you want out of selling your stuff if the ability to say i now have a house that no one can kick me out of i've got an apartment i bought a farm i bought it whatever those are things. Can you stabilize your future? If you're looking for how to get out, can you get the number one thing is a roof over your Oh, head. yes. In, in today's world. That you can afford, you know. So those kind of things you're looking for, particularly for artists, you're looking for that that type of stability. So that may be that may be worth leveraging the future yes. for. Yes. Yeah. You know. Okay. okay. 
Interesting, very interesting. So again, these are all very, very personal decisions. Oh, they're totally personal because everybody's situation is different at the end of the day, really. So- yeah. And when you are doing this, you are, to, to keep it real, you will be selling your publishing, you will be selling your masters. You will never, ever, ever sell your writer's royalties because that's sort of the, what we've got that the, the fine artists don't have, which is if they blow it up, the song's super famous and it makes a million dollars. If you wrote it, you get half a million of it. You still got that. You get to have your cake and eat it too. You get to sell the publishing, but keep the writers. So you're keeping 50% of the ongoing income. So artists are, or musical songwriters don't actually have to have an NFT or anything to realize future value. They don't have to have a smart contract as long as they're not stupid enough to put sell their writer's share, you know, which some countries don't even allow. Yeah. Uh, so what? You, so this they, is where like you need they, to do your research and get legal advice when the time comes and all that kind of thing, um, just to make sure that all your corners. Well, are I mean, there aren't very many people. Yeah, I was gonna say I caution you. There are a lot more people who are talking about this that don't know what they're talking about, like me. You know, I know a cursory bit of it. But I'm certainly nobody would pay me for this advice. So take it with a grain yeah, of salt. Yeah, you know? at least you're... It's my opinion. I could yes. be wrong. Okay. Okay. So the big thing is there are people out there for the mid-range artists because that's let's say that's the majority of our world are mid-range artists. And it, and it could be, yeah, it could be even the major labels. You know, because I think the big deal for the legacy people you're talking about, they probably had a publishing or a or a major label record deal if they're having any kind of numbers at all. They probably were once on there and got kicked off. Those are the mid-levels now. I was, you know, I was I was on the major and then now I'm not, you know. So those people, those are the people that, that can get back in. And the first person, once they've got the numbers up, first person they should approach is who signed them in the first place. Hey, Sonia, I used to be on your label. How'd you guys like to have a yeah, look at it? Yeah, have on? a look at it again kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. You already invested in me before. Why don't you uh, reap the rewards of the cool yeah. stuff I've done now? For, you know, we say in our world, there's always a deal to be done. You know, if the foundation is there, there's always a deal to be done, yeah. really. But just to be knowledgeable and take your time, really. Well, Barry, yeah. thanks very much for today's interview. It's really interesting because there are a lot of people out there that were very successful in the 80s, the 90s. They mightn't have hit the David Bowie level, but but, no um, but uh, they really had beautiful music that's worth something and it's worth um, talking about. So it's so funny because I was I was doing something last night and I realized I'm one of those guys. You know, I wrote <laughs> really? a song, yeah, I wrote a song called How Do You Talk to an Angel that was number one hit. And I'm going, when was it? And I I had the, the year wrong. I thought I wrote it in 1993. And that was the year I was nominated for an Emmy, which I okay. lost. Okay, um, nominated. But it was 1993. Yeah, so I, I actually discovered that my song actually came out in 1992, which I forgot. So I even had my own year of release. Yeah. So I know it's tired. Yeah, yeah that's, when that's, you get busy with life, it just like zoom, evaporates. Yeah, you're going like really? Oh, yeah. I, I would have. I like. I was. I was. Yeah. We're doing some stuff where, where I've got some remakes, and we're going to go kind of, kind of do exactly what yeah, I told yeah. you to do. I'm trying to up my ante a little bit. And yeah. uh, you know, and I would have put the wrong oh, date on funny. it. I had to do research and found out I was not as smart as yes, I thought. So there so. you are. Everyone gets it wrong. So for you legacy people, do research on your own releases because you may actually have the, some information yeah, wrong. Perfect. Well, listen, thanks very much for coming on today. And I hope it helps our listeners. I really do because, as I say, there's a lot of you out there. So um, thanks very much. Thank you.